with this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales, Canberra campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. And if things sound a bit tinny, it's just because we're still recording during the COVID lockdown. Now, this is the third of four episodes dealing with the Royal Australian Navy in the Middle East since 1990. In the last two episodes, an expert panel discussed the RAN's involvement in the 1990-91 Gulf War. In this episode, a new panel will discuss the 12 years of enforcing United Nations Security Council sanctions against Iraq by the multinational Maritime Deception Force up until the 2003 Iraq War. To discuss these eventful years, I'm joined by Dr. David Stevens from the Australian War Memorial. He's an author on the official history project writing up Australian operations in Iraq, Afghanistan and East Timor. David's also a member of the Naval Studies Group, and during his former naval career, he was on the RN Task Group Commander's staff during the 1991 Gulf War, and was with the RN Task Group as a naval historian during the 2003 Iraq War. We're delighted to have Mr Paul Singer, who is the Official Secretary to the Governor-General of Australia. In his previous naval career, Paul was a Lieutenant and Boarding Officer in the Frigate HMAS Anzac for two deployments to the Gulf and he was awarded commendations for his leadership of specialist maritime teams responsible for enforcing UN sanctions during the Iraq conflict. And we're also joined by two retired Rear Admirals, both members of the Naval Studies Group, both former RAN Task Group Commanders in the Gulf, and Coalition Maritime Interception Force Commanders. They are Rear Admiral James Goldrick, who was there in 2002, and Rear Admiral Alan Dutois, who was there in late 2001-2002, and again in late 2007-2008. Thank you all for joining me. First off, David, Kuwait was liberated by coalition forces on the 28th of February 1991. Yet there was a requirement to have and to maintain the UN Security Council sanctions on Iraq. Why? Well, you recall from the previous episodes that the uh, expulsion of Iraq from Kuwait ended with a ceasefire. And although this brought uh, the conflict to an end, it certainly didn't lift the previously imposed economic sanctions. And in fact, in early April, the UN Security Council passed another resolution, number 687, which was the longest and most complex uh, it's ever adopted to, to that date. And this resolution set out the specific conditions for lifting the economic sanctions. And in short, the UN demanded that Iraq destroy or render harmless all of its chemical and biological weapons. Um, all stocks of chemical and biological agents, and also any ballistic missiles with a range greater than 150 kilometres. The United Nations also, as part of this resolution, set up a special commission to oversee the destruction and to monitor Iraq's long-term compliance. And as an aside here, I should also note that the Australian Defence Force, including several RAN members, were involved in the inspection and monitoring process uh, during the 1990s under what the ADF called Operation Blazer. But while this uh, inspection and monitoring process continued, the economic um, sanctions regime also continued. And that, of course, meant a continuing role for the Maritime Interception Force in preventing Iraq from violating these economic sanctions. Alan Dutrois, the RN, took part. Uh, as David's noted in the sanction enforcement operations through regular deployments under Operation Damask. Can you tell us a bit about what that involved? Well, as we heard in the previous episode, 
Australia initially provided a three-ship task group as part of Operation Damask One. And this was followed by a second task group deployment in Damask Two. And as explained by David, after Kuwait's liberation in late February 1991, maritime patrols aimed at ensuring Iraq's compliance with UN sanctions continued under the auspices of Operation Damask. As a result, for the next decade, Australia maintained a regular, though not uninterrupted, single ship presence with the multinational maritime interception force. And this occurred in either the Red Sea or the Arabian Gulf, and it was designed to demonstrate continuing international resolve. The United States Navy ran the overall campaign, but throughout the embargo's evolution, the Royal Australian Navy played a major partnership role. The first two single-ship Australian MIF deployments after the liberation of Kuwait, Damascus 3 and 4, were largely focused on operations in the Red Sea. And this took place under loose association command and control arrangements. These operations, which involved working with not only the US Navy, but also with the French Navy, continued until the effective shore inspection regime was negotiated in the port of Aqaba in Jordan. From Damask 5, the focus of our single ship involvement in the sanction enforcement operation shifted from the Red Sea back again into the Gulf. And this involvement continued with the pattern of compliant boarding operations in support of the US-led interception force. Remembering, of course, that the only cargoes allowed out of Iraq under the UN sanctions regime were the super tankers, which worked under the Wealth of Food program. Importantly during this period, the manner in which the MIF conducted interception and boardings changed markedly. This culminated in the requirement to conduct non-compliant boardings, which Paul will discuss further. This required getting the boarding parties aboard through a range of passive countermeasures and taking control of a ship before it reached Iranian territorial waters. And this, of course, was a different style of boarding to what we'd seen before. In addition, we were now involved in long-range boardings. Overall, in adapting to these changes, it'd be fair to say that the RIN uh, played to its strengths and Australian sailors proved highly adaptable and ever, ever ready to innovate. HMAS Anzac, for example, during the 10th and final Damascus deployment in mid-2001, was instrumental in bringing about a more aggressive approach to coalition interception operations. And this was to be the first of a series of paradigm shifts in the manner in which subsequent MIF operations would be conducted. Indeed, over the course of ANZAC's deployment, the MIF success rate against the legal traders increased from just 20% to more like 80%. Now, Paul Singer, let's bring you in here. David's talked a bit about the strategic situation and Alan's just described the operational context. You were a boarding officer during a Damascus deployment and there were, there were compliant boardings and non-compliant boardings. Can you tell us a bit about the difference and then tell us how a compliant boarding, for example, is carried out? Well, ANZAC was prepared as part of its uh, preparations for the Damascus 10 deployment to conduct three types of different boardings. The first, as we've heard uh, briefly described by Ellen, was the compliant boardings. And these were also known as the 986 boardings, 
which referred to the United Nations Security Council Resolution 986 or the Oil for Food Program. These vessels would often offer no resistance to a MIO or a Maritime Interception Operation ship's request to stop and submit to a search. They would usually uh, operated under the UNSCR 986 and carried legitimate United Nations authorised cargo. And those boardings would normally be conducted during daylight hours. The other type of boarding was a non-compliant boarding, and this would be when an intercepted vessel refused to comply with the directions of the MIO ship. They could be conducted either day or night, but were most commonly at night. And just briefly, the other thing that ANZAC was trained to do was health and comfort checks. This involved regular checks on vessels that had failed to comply with the UNSCRs and had been directed to anchor in a holding area called Comiskey. These security vessels, uh, or the security of these vessels being held at Comiskey and the health of those crews were the responsibility of the United Nations and that was delegated to the MIO ships. And in terms of how a compliant boarding would be conducted, there was generally six phases. The first would be the detection and localisation. And that, of course, would involve the detection, the identifying, the observation and designation of a particular vessel. The second phase would be the interception and approach, where ANZAC or a coalition ship would close the vessel and station as directed. And these could also be done by the embarked helicopter as well. The third phase was interrogation. This is where we'd use bridge-to-bridge -bridge communication and ask a series of questions to get specific vessel information to determine whether a boarding was necessary. And based on that information, the fourth phase was insertion. And that would come after the approval from the MIO commander and preparations would be made to insert the boarding party by either the RIB or the ship's helicopter. And once the boarding party were embarked, the various elements of that team would proceed to their respective search areas and they would muster the crew members and ensure that uh, all crew had been verified and weapons accounted for if there were in fact any. And after that stage, the boarding officer would pass low threat to ANZAC and instruct that the search phase should begin. And that was the fifth phase, the search. And that would require a complete document check and a detailed search of all the embarked cargo and accommodation areas. And depending on the size of a the ship, these searches could sometimes take hours, particularly for the large container ships, as the boarding party went about and inspected each container. In those conditions, it was difficult and physically demanding work. After the search had been conducted and the paperwork verified, the vessel would be cleared to proceed. And then the final phase was extraction, which would be to safely retrieve the boarding party, often by rib, back to Anzac. James Goldrick, how effective was this campaign in containing Saddam Hussein, which was, after all, uh, one of the primary missions of the task? It was certainly extremely effective. Um, Anzac's efforts uh, were the centre of a general reduction of about 50% in the illegal oil um, that was being smuggled out of Iraq. And of course, the reason for wanting to stop that uh, movement was that it um, effectively was a source of uncontrolled cash for the Iraqi government. I think they were charging about $150 a tonne US for oil. So it was extremely effective. Um, 
The, the reduction, however, wasn't complete. It was about 50%. And of course, that left um, a requirement to look at different ways, uh, as happened in 2002, uh, for fixing the problem finally. Well, Singer, you were on board ANZAC during the last Damas deployment. Can you tell us something of your captain, Nigel Coates, end of the ship? Nigel Coates was the ducks of his graduating year at the Australian Naval College. He was the ducks of his seaman officer training. He was appointed as an aide-to-com to the Governor-General, then St Indian Stephen, in August 1983. In fact, I think he may have even taken over from you, James. Uh, both of his commands, HMAS Canberra and HMAS Anzac, both resulted in being awarded the Duke of Gloucester Cup for the most efficient ship in the REN. This was a leader who attracted success. And as the commanding officer of HMAS Anzac, he was universally admired and respected. He had a calm and authoritative presence. He knew every one of the crew by name. He invested deeply in the development of others, and he always sought to help others be the very best version of themselves. He was also a great maritime tactician, and I think his experience as a fleet direction officer during the first Gulf War prepared him very well for command of Anzac during the Damask 10 deployment. And as a ship's company in HMAS Anzac, we were extremely well prepared. We'd achieved OLOC, or Operational Level of Capability, and it exercised extensively with USS John Paul Jones and Ali Burke and USS O'Brien, a spruance, while on passage from Australia to the Gulf. The ANZAC class, in many respects, were a really capable and appropriate platform for these types of operations, with a displacement of just over 3,500 tonnes and a relatively shy draft of about 4.5 metres. ANZAC was able to operate close to the Iraqi coast and near the mouth of the strategically important Khor Abdallah the KAA, which is the waterway that connects the Iraqi port of Unkasar to the North Arabian Gulf. And this, of course, as we've heard, is where a lot of the illegal activity was occurring. And able to operate in those shallow waters, ANZAC tightened the blockade and helped stem the flow of the smuggled oil coming out of Iraq. This meant that ANZAC was often involved in surge operations, which were designed to counter smuggling activities where illegal vessels would leave Iraqi waters and try to move quickly to the relative safety of Iranian territorial waters, where, as we heard from Ellen earlier, MIO forces were unable to follow. This required deft planning and execution to conduct a non-compliant boarding with only, within only a very small window of opportunity before the smuggler would enter those Iranian waters. Well, just as a quick follow-up, can you tell us a bit about how the boarding teams would take control or attempt to take control of these evading smugglers and these non-compliant boardings? Well, after that initial detection and, the, and a failed interrogation of the ship, approval was sought from the MIO commander to board a suspected smuggler and then consideration would be given as to how best to insert the boarding party. And often this would be done by fast roping from a helicopter while ANZAC would approach and launch the two ribs to provide additional support. There's a particular area in the North Arabian Gulf where smugglers would try and make a run and cut the corner. And this provided ANZAC a very small window of opportunity to insert the boarding party and seize control of the vessel. And by inserting the boarding party by fast roping, it enabled very quick access to the vessel and ensured that the boarding party was almost immediately able to seize control of the vessel. 
The boarding officer would instruct the master to either stop the engines or turn the vessel away from Iranian territorial waters. And after the search had been conducted and if contraband had been confirmed, a security steaming party would be embarked to direct the vessel to the UN holding anchorage at Kamesky for further processing. David Stevens, the uh, nature of sanctions enforcement in the Gulf changed after the 11th September 2001 attacks on New York and Washington. But how? How did they change? Well, the first thing you've got to remember, and I mean, it's obviously easy for us because we were, were around at the time, but for future listeners, is the, um, the shock that these attacks caused and the uncertainty about whether any follow-on attacks were planned. Now, this meant that there was an immediate response to increased security all over the world, um, particularly military and political security, and with the attacks thought to be originating in the Middle East, um, that was obviously a a scene of um, particular concern. Now, on 9-11, HMAS Anzac was alongside in Bahrain. In fact, she was at the end of her Damask uh, deployment and just about to return to Australia. The immediate priority for the US Fifth Fleet in the region was to get all their ships out to sea. And although uh, Anzac was no longer under US control, um, she, and under uh, Nigel Coates, offered to assist in any way they could. And in fact, Anzac was tasked by the US Fifth Fleet to escort um, two US mine hunters out to sea and stay with them overnight to offer close protection to those mine hunters. Um, at the same time, uh, Nigel Coates sought and received permission to extend Anzac's uh, stay in the Middle East. And this allowed the Americans to uh, send her back to the North Arabian Gulf uh, to main guardship duties, while their own guardship, which was a, uh, a Tomahawk land attack cruise missile armed vessel, um, get that out into the open ocean so it could uh, react um, and be be there as a strategic asset should the Americans decide to uh, use those weapons somewhere. So they wanted to make sure that their ships weren't stuck in the um, Arabian Gulf by any closure of the Strait of Hormuz. So for Anzac, of course, this meant that she was on her own up in the North Arabian Gulf for a number of days. And um, being alone up there, Uh, with both Iraq and Iran increasing their military preparedness, obviously so, and no one really knew what was going on and whether, you know, another commercial airliner might come down on you was obviously quite a uh, stressful situation. But obviously Anzac handled it and, in fact, her deployment was then extended even further um, such that rather than uh, heading home, she waited in the Gulf or continuing to perform her duties until a new Damask unit, HMAS Sydney, uh, could be sent out to continue thereafter a permanent presence in the, in the North Arabian Gulf. Alan Detroit, you were the first Australian to command the Maritime Interception Force, the MIF. Can you tell us a bit about how the command arrangements worked? Well, as the first uh, Australian Operation Slipper Rotation 1 ships were completing their successive workup and departure, the larger maritime components of Operation Enduring Freedom, as the operation overall was known, were undergoing their own development and consolidation. And indeed, by October 2001, General Tommy Franks's reorganisation of the CENTCOM Theatre Command structure 
into functional components had taken effect. The dual-headed Bahrain-based Commander U.S. 5th Fleet and also Commander U.S. Naval Forces Central Command, Vice Admiral Moore, becoming the coalition, or sometimes referred to as Combined Joint Forces Maritime Component Commander. And with the expanding 5th Fleet eventually organised into nine separate task forces, the most powerful remained Task Force 50, and Moore had established this immediately after 9-11, initially under Commander Carrier Group 3, embarked in the carrier USS Carl Vinson. Now, this command function would subsequently be moved between in-theatre carrier group commanders as carriers and indeed the embarked commanders came and went while maintaining at least a two-ship carrier force in the CENTCOM area of operations. Task Force 50 also provided overarching command and support to maritime interception operations. With a Bahrain-based commander or Commodore Destroyer Squadron 50, commonly known as Deseron 50, Captain David Jackson retaining the role of Maritime Interception Commander, or MIC, in the Arabian Gulf. In that role, he reported to CTF 50, who in turn reported to Commander Fifth Fleet. I guess importantly for me, the title Commodore in the US Navy remained an honorific. As the actual Deseron appointment retained a substantive captain rank within the US command structure, the same rank of the RAN's deployed CTG, it posed no hurdles for a smooth transition of responsibilities between us as the Maritime Deception Commander, initially on a monthly rotational basis. And as the MIC embarked in a US destroyer, together with my battle staff, I retained responsibility for the tactical direction of all coalition surface, air, and naval special warfare assets designed to enforce UN sanctions against Iraq. This included not only the three RAN and also the three US Navy units assigned to the operation, but also those of the Royal Navy and Canadian Navy assigned for the mission. And also during monthly surge operations, those that might be allocated by Kuwait. Overall, the significance of this, of this event, the first time in the MIF's 12-year history that a non-American officer taken command of MIA operations meant that it received extensive international and domestic media coverage. Indeed, my successor, James Goldrick, and I believe that we were the first foreign officers to exercise command from a US ship in a real-world operational scenario since the Korean War. James, as Alan's mentioned, you were the second Australian to command the MIF, and you altered the tactics employed. Can you tell us a bit about your thinking as to why that was necessary and, and importantly, did it achieve what you'd hoped? Um, <clears throat> it took me some time to understand what exactly was going on, um, but it became clear to me that although we'd achieved this 50% reduction and that had been sustained and the uh, efficiency at the actual non-compliant boardings was remarkable. Um, you know, it, what ANZAC had achieved and then what had been directly built on uh, really had achieved a very high standard. Um, we weren't getting them all. And I formed the view that the Gulf was a very complex place. Indeed, when I talk about this to um, Army in particular, I, I asked them to think about it 
in the same way as a complex urban environment. Um, you don't see what's going on quite a lot of the time. It's dynamic, and the minute your back's turned, something happens. And I realized that, in fact, a lot of smugglers were getting out because we were too far away um, to be able to observe them properly. Um, there were gaps in our um, surveillance in any case, uh, with ships going away for replenishment and other things. Um, and that the picture compilation wasn't nearly as good as I think people thought it was. And I realized that the only way to get around this was, in fact, to push the ships up as close as we could, indeed well into Iraqi territorial waters, and effectively be so close um, that uh, the oil smugglers were not going to try to get out. Now, that required quite a few other actions. It would not have been possible had we not had the three Australian ships, um, which allowed us just to... Uh, maintain that sort of presence. Uh, the American ships uh, were somewhat constrained. Many of them drew a lot more water um, than our ships did. And also, to be frank, the navigational procedures and systems are really not designed for the literal, for uh, close coastal operational stuff in a way that our systems are. Um, there was another problem that the British ship, which um, was available from time to time, um, had rules engagement, which actually prohibited it from going in, into Iraqi territorial waters. Um, I discovered later that that was not a rule, of, that should not have been a rule of engagement. It was an overhang from the 90, what the aftermath of the 91 war, where Iraqi territorial waters were considered too dangerous in terms of mines and wrecks. And I'm happy to say the British eventually changed that. And it was a good object lesson to people um, not to take rules of engagement as gospel. Uh, when you're coming into theatre uh, in an extended contingency, but examine them carefully. So the idea was simply to really impose a close blockade and by so doing to prevent things happening. Um, now, that was it was quite an interesting situation in that, of course, that created a challenge for the ship's companies in that they were doing much less exciting stuff of takedowns than the satisfaction of, you know, having really taken a... a a trophy in the form of a tanker. And also it took some time to get the uh, Fifth Fleet in particular, but indeed maritime headquarters in Australia, to understand that the measure of effectiveness was not the number of successful boardings. The measure of effectiveness was, as revealed by intelligence after a couple of months, that no oil was being loaded at the Iraqi facilities, which of course meant that no oil was actually leaving. Well, seeing this greater effectiveness, as James has just talked about, uh, led to a bit of a cat and mouse game, didn't it, between the MIF and a number of the smugglers. Can you tell us a bit about some of the tactics the smugglers were employing and what did you do to defeat them or overcome these tactics? It did, Rob, and as we've heard from both Alan and James earlier, over the course of ANZAC's deployment and subsequently maintained by other Australian units, the MIF's success rate against the smugglers increased from about 20% to 80%. And just as the MIF adapted their interception operations, so too did the smugglers. Uh, we started to see a change to their onboard defences. For example, in the Type 3 tankers, they would weld external access doors shut and restrict access by boarding parties. They would sometimes have steel poles protruding from their hull under the waterline to prevent ribs from coming alongside. 
they'd sometimes use their fire hoses to discourage approaching boarding parties, and of course, sometimes they would be armed. These defences were overcome by the boarding teams being inserted by fast rope, and ideally without notice. The boarding teams would fast rope onto the superstructure of a tanker and then break through one of the unboarded bridge windows to gain access and seize control of the vessel. And the tactic used by the Dows would be to coordinate themselves in the core Abdullah and arrange for a mass breakout, expecting that the MIF units would struggle to detain them all. And as James has just explained, this was overcome by units such as Anzac, who were capable of operating in the shallow waters and sending their ribs into the waterway to intercept the smugglers before they made it into the wider waters of the North Arabian Gulf. And over time, with the positive reputation earned by the Australian forces, it meant that boarding parties could often direct vessels to return to Umkasar without the need to physically board them. They called us the blue healers of the North Arabian Gulf. Alan de Troyes, many of these smuggling operations took place at night. Can you talk us through a typical night of sanctions enforcement? What did that look like? Well, the Smiths mostly sought to exit the KAA at a time when MIF surveillance was least effective and its non-compliant boarding capability was marginal. I guess the ideal combination from their point of view was at night, during low visibility, low lunar illumination, high water and high winds and seas. An added bonus would, of course, be if these conditions could be combined with thunderstorm activity, which would limit helicopter operations. As a result, most but not all smuggling operations took place at night, which was undoubtedly the busiest time for the MIF with its assets set to intercept and pounce on smugglers in an effort to stop the illegal trade in oil. As Paul has described, the smugglers did not make it easy for the MIF. Their ships were fitted with increasingly sophisticated passive defences to confound boarding parties and buy precious time for them as they made a break for Iranian waters. The whole trick for the smugglers was to be able to get from the KIA undetected and into Iranian recognised territorial waters as quickly as possible as part of this game of cat and mouse, was to spot the smugglers as they emerged. If they could not be intercepted before entering Iranian waters, to maintain constant tracking on them from that point. This, of course, was necessary both from a legal aspect and to ensure the potential to run a successful endgame within the central or southern Arabian Gulf when they eventually exited Iranian-recognised territorial waters. Pursuit and apprehension of smugglers originating in the Nag was consequently conducted across the length and the breadth of the Arabian Gulf, and on a number of occasions, the Gulf of Oman as far east as the coast of Pakistan. James Goldrick, you had many experiences, obviously, during your time in command, but amongst them was the fact that you had to consider or think about how to employ potentially special forces. Can you tell us a little about that? Um, the special forces uh, included the Poles, the Polish Grom team, which turned up. Um, I had the American SEALs who were accustomed to operating and particularly used to come during the surge operations. Um, and they were joined by Grom uh, later in my command period. The SEALs were pretty well used to what, to what they were doing. Um, 
And one of the problems, however, with surge operations was smugglers were well aware of the regular monthly surge and tended to take a low profile. Uh, so indeed, the special, the American special forces didn't um, take a big role until the problem that uh, the shift that Paul mentioned started to happen uh, with the mass, uh, with, with the dials starting to come out. Um, the SEALs handled that well when they were involved. Uh, it was interesting to see the Grom team, who um, had very limited maritime expertise, um, having to deal with the um, realities of trying to operate from small boats onto dows. Uh, I will say that they adapted very well and very quickly, but it was quite interesting watching um, Special Forces team realise that they weren't necessarily expert in the environment uh, in which they'd been placed. And I think they were quite pleased and relieved um, by the um, by the fact that they were able to conduct successful operations from the start, even if watching it um, by a Hawklink video uh, suggested that it wasn't quite the elegance of uh, cat-like special forces uh, seizing their prey. Alan de Troyes, there is, of course, a an elephant in a room, so to speak, another major actor in the uh, in North Arabian Gulf, and that is Iran. Now, did the MIF interact with Iran? And if so, how did that shape out? Well, in simple terms, we did not wish to get mixed up with Iranian forces in the Northern Arabian Gulf, and in particular, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy, the so-called IRGCN, who are quite frankly a group of unpredictable semi-criminal thugs. Indeed, there was considerable evidence of collusion between IRGCN elements and the smugglers operating out of the KIA, including the extraction of so-called transit tolls as they proceeded through Iranian territorial waters. And indeed, if they didn't pay those tolls, they would get evicted or arrested by the IRGCN. And indeed, if harassed in closer, uh, close to Iranian waters, we would normally withdraw to avoid unnecessary confrontation. Moreover, we wouldn't conduct non-compliant boardings if the IRGCN were in close proximity. On the other hand, the more professional Iranian Navy on a number of occasions showed its willingness to assist both Australian and British units by flushing smugglers out of Iranian waters into the hands of shadowing MIF forces in both the Central and the Southern Arabian Gulf and also in the Gulf of Omar. James Goldrick, this brings us up to the end of 2002, and by this time, there's a sense that there's a war with Iraq on the horizon. Why did it get to this? Why wasn't the sanctions campaign enough? This gets into the wider geostrategic considerations and the national policy of the United States government. Uh, it's quite clear that the neoconservatives um, who were surrounding the younger President Bush had an agenda, and indeed, it's argued that the younger President Bush um, had some feeling um, for his father uh, that the um, supposed work of the first Gulf War had not been finished. And certainly when I was in Washington in late September, um, after I'd uh, completed my deployment and become director general military strategy, it was quite clear that uh, the Americans were moving towards um, some sort of invasion of Iraq. In retrospect, um, the lack of thinking through what was going to happen was remarkable. 
But from a maritime point of view, one of the things that struck me most was that I don't think the maritime side made the point strongly enough uh, that the sanctions program was sufficiently effective that Iraq could not have a sophisticated, a sophisticated, capable war machine. You cannot sustain that in a country uh, of the size and capabilities of Iraq unless you have access to the um, really global arms industry and global materials. And I think there was this argument that, uh, oh, but there's a lot of smuggling going on. Well, there was smuggling going on. But the fact is that most of the smuggling was, in fact, over the land borders. But as I made the point, if you're the governor of a, of a neighboring province to Iraq and somebody's wanting to smuggle five Mercedes-Benz luxury vehicles, that's one thing. If somebody wants to start putting T-72 tanks in their kit in, that's another. And what, in fact, was revealed after the war, you know, after the war had ended, was that it was quite clear that the Iraqi war machine was practically moribund and certainly had not been able to be sustained. And as I say, I think this was something that really wasn't thought through sufficiently, that in fact the sanctions program was effective um, and had put Iraq in a situation where really its practical abilities to do anything aggressive were incredibly limited. Paul Singer, one evening, just a couple of days, in fact, before the start of the 2003 Iraq War, a Kuwaiti patrol boat had fired some shots at a smuggler. Now, the MIF commander ordered Anzac to send a boarding team across to the Dow after receiving a, a request for assistance. You led that boarding team. What, what was there? What did you find? Well, it was partway through to First Watch on Saturday the 15th of March. So as you say, only a couple of days before the outbreak of the Iraq War. Uh, Anzac was patrolling in the North Arabian Gulf and the whole ship's company was on high alert as conflict seemed inevitable. You could really sense the tension, the anxiety and the expectation. And at the time, I was the officer watching on board Anzac when we heard an exchange between the Q80 patrol boat Maskan and a cargo dow play out over VHF Channel 16. The warnings and the responses became increasingly animated until the Q80 patrol boat exclaimed, stop your vessel or I will be forced to fire warning shots. By now, the patrol boat and the Dow were about one and a half miles on Anzac's port quarter. The Dow had failed to stop, and again, the Maskin threatened to fire. I then heard from the bridge wing a single round fired from the patrol boat's 12.7mm gun, and then another round. The Dow had continued and seemingly increased in speed. The patrol boat then fired what I'd counted to be a burst of about 10 to 15 rounds. And over the VHF radio, the Dow claimed that they'd been hit and that one of the crew members had been shot. Anzac was tasked to send a small boarding team to provide assistance. I was joined by the Anzac doctor, one of the ship's medical team and a security member. We proceeded to the Dow by rib and while the Q80 patrol boat remained 200 yards on the Dow's port quarter. The security member and I boarded the vessel and immediately mustered the crew on the forecastle. Once we'd secured the vessel, I called our medical team on board. From there, we proceeded to the wheelhouse and there, motionless on the deck, in a pool of blood, was one of the crew. And I'll never forget the sight of this man, laying motionless on his back, eyes open, gazing towards the stars and the blood streaming from his head. 
I also clearly remember the different sounds at that moment, the crew wailing, one of whom was the brother of a deceased, and by this time we'd been joined by one of the coalition helicopters circling above. The noise was deafening. The crew were quite clearly distressed and, as you can imagine, highly agitated. The master explained to me that the casualty had been shot through the head and I could see the entry point of the round through his upper left skull. I also counted about eight holes where rounds had penetrated the port side of the wheelhouse and through the accommodation space to the starboard bulkhead, where the fateful round had struck the crew member. We sought to provide what comfort we could to the master and the crew, all the while feeding updates back to ANZAC and to the MIF commander. We were very focused at that time on ensuring that with tensions in the region as they were, that the situation didn't escalate any further. We inspected the vessel and in our search found 450 tonnes of illegal cargo. And after about two hours on board and on the instruction from the MIF commander, I directed the master to then return to its last port of call in Umkasa. Well, David Stevens, just before we conclude this episode, let's step back from the, the very viscerally granular to the strategic and the 12 years of sanctions enforcement by the MIF soon rubbed up, as we know, against the start of the 2003 Iraq war. How did this unfold? Well, as I'm sure we'll hear in the next episode, um, the Maritime Interception Force's role in the planned invasion of Iraq had a lot of separate moving parts, which all had to work together. Now, one of those parts was to clear the, the Khor Abdullah waterway of all the shipping that the uh, force had managed to lock up there over the previous months. Now, on the afternoon of 17th of March, two days before the invasion of Iraq was due to begin, uh, um, another massive Dow breakout occurred. But this was a rather different breakout to those we've been hearing about um, previously today. Rather than attempting to avoid the uh, coalition forces, the Dow crews were seen to be waving white flags and offering to dump their cargoes over the side of their vessels. Soon it emerged that they were reacting to news reports uh, from the BBC and from the cable news network that it had announced the imminent uh, start of hostilities between the coalition and Iraq. And obviously these uh, Dows and their masters were doing everything they could to uh, get out of the firing line before that um, firing started. Now, well aware of the risks of uh, an uncontrolled exit uh, from the Khor Abdullah, which would create a lot of confusion, particularly if these Dows, which could have been potentially carrying mines or um, other explosives, um, you needed to control that, um, that uh, Dow breakout. There's also the danger, of course, that the um, cargo jettisoned would also confuse the picture. So the Fifth Fleet Commander approved a transition directly to the wartime role of clearing the Khor Abdullah for the Maritime Interception Force. And over the next two days, the, uh, the force cleared something like 50 Dows and 47 steeled hulled merchant vessels in what was actually a, a very busy uh, effort. Now, although an unexpected start to operations, what that did was it cleared the waterway before the war started, which was actually a, a significant advantage for what was about to happen next. Now, at this 
point in the story, we'll leave with the MIF poised to take part in the Iraq war. But before we conclude this episode, can I ask each of you for a comment on the RAM's involvement in the sanctions enforcement regime, and in particular, if you have any thoughts as to its legacy? Paul Singer, let's begin with you. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Alan and James, given their roles as task group commanders, are a better place to talk to the strategic aspects of the long-term legacy of the REN's involvement. For me, one of the enduring legacies is the confidence that it gave the REN. Thousands of Australians served under the White Ensign in the Gulf throughout the period, and in so doing, built the collective confidence and capability in REN operations. ANZAC, for example, in that second deployment conducted 291 boardings, of which 239 were non-compliant. This was a significant change in operations, even from ANZAC's deployment only 12 months earlier. Boarding teams would routinely operate at ranges 10 to 15 miles from ANZAC. They were innovative, they were very effective, and they achieved outstanding outcomes. And an observation that struck me several times during each deployment, and in particular the second deployment between 2002 and 2003, when we were working closely with other coalition units, was that the Australian boarding teams comprised ordinary sailors trained to do extraordinary things. They were not special forces, as we heard from James earlier, as was the case with our partners. Yet night after night, operating at great distances from Anzac and deep within Iraqi territorial waters, the impressive men and women of the Aryan were professionally and successfully making a valuable impact. Australia developed quite a reputation for its highly effective boarding operations, and that was built on the shoulders of some courageous, skilled and capable sailors that represented the finest traditions of the Aryan and the broader Australian Defence Force. It was a period that marked, for me, a significant step forward for our modern Navy that laid the foundation ahead of Australian ships including ANZAC, playing a critical role in the Iraq war. And Alan Dutrois, how about some thoughts from you? Well, from my perspective, I think the RAN proved to be a lasting, capable, agile and innovative coalition partner throughout this, this uh, lengthy period. But I guess the real legacy lies in the combined interoperability achieved, in particular with our other Five Eyes partners. This interoperability depended not just on shared doctrine, training, tactics and technology, but on the relationships built by between operators who work closely together at all ranks throughout this protracted and complex section enforcement campaign. James Goldrick, some concluding comments from you? I put two concluding comments. I'd certainly back exactly what Paul and Alan say, I, but I want to make that there was one thing we needed to relearn and a problem that I think it did create for the future, which I think we're still working through. The thing we needed to relearn was that um, it was there was more to life than single ship deployments. Um, Australian ships weren't used to operating in national task groups at this point. Uh, even with the experience of East Timor. Uh, it was this idea that the single ship went off as the national unit and was the not simply the national um, symbol, but also effectively independent. It was working in a coalition, but it was the nation. And it took a certain amount of adjustment uh, to get Australian ships to understand that they were working within an Australian force with a coalition, and that required different relationships. 
Uh, and indeed, I think we're still working as a Navy on the task group, task force concepts and how we run them. And associated with that learning point was uh, the importance that when you reach a certain level, um, you really can't do it as well if you're in command of your own ship. You do need to have a different setup in order to have somebody who has the time for the wider picture. The problem it created for us, um, and it's the old adage that if you can do a thousand things and you add something, then something drops off the other end, uh, was getting a balance between the extraordinary capabilities and achievements um, and expertise that we'd acquired and maintaining uh, and recovering warfare disciplines in areas of high intensity warfare, which weren't related to the sort of work we were doing in the Gulf. And again, I think that's been a problem in recent years that we've needed to address without losing, as I say, those extraordinary um, advances in capability and expertise, which were achieved by those involved in the Gulf in, in doing these uh, amazing adaptive boarding operations. And finally, David Stevens. Yeah, well, I think there's uh, two points I'd like to make. The first is, um, as Paul's mentioned, not just the professionalism of the people, but also those, the strain of the environment. Uh, we sometimes forget that operating in, a, in an open, um, uh, open boat as a boarding party, you had to do that in the depths of winter and in the height of summer. And you can imagine the temperatures in the Gulf uh, really have got um, some significant extremes, you know, well up to 50 degrees centigrade and above in uh, summer. And of course, a winter night being wet uh, and cold and um, perhaps having to deal with a Shamal wind full of dust and dirt. These are not easy conditions for everyone or anyone. And the other point I'd like to make is something we, we don't, often mention is the families. By this stage, some of our people were um, deploying three or four times already, um, which is quite a lot. They're away for a long period of time and they obviously had to be supported by their families. And none of these things could happen if our people didn't have that support. Sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Paul Singer, Alan Dutois, James Goldrick and David Stevens. And in the next episode, we're going to continue the story of the RAN and the Gulf with another panel of experts. And they'll look at the RAN and the multinational interception force and their involvement in the 2003 Iraq war. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. And its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and goodbye for now.